Looking in from the outside, you might have thought the magic was gone. That we'd become bored with each other after three months. There was this cute little bistro. A little loud, but cute. Just steps from the front door that featured a rotating menu of small plates, like tapas, prepared by different visiting chefs. These were big chefs, too. Household names. Each day, though, meal after meal, together, we took to our own little kitchen for lasagna. Always lasagna. It never felt monotonous. It was our thing. I wasn't worried. She'd toss two red bricks in the oven and spin around ballerina style on her tippy toes. The hair was untamed and silly. The curls, like copper-colored slinkies, would bounce in and out of her face. They danced when she danced, and they giggled when she giggled, which was a lot because, well, frankly, she found me hysterical. Then we'd sit and pretend eat wooden blocks in a comfortable silence, like we were the only two kids in the preschool. Okay, maybe I was a little worried the magic was gone. Or, maybe, it was just the inception of a long-held belief that occasional, non-occasional flowers, the ones least expected, the ones you get on a random Tuesday just because, are what keeps the classic romance, the magic, in a relationship. Whatever the reason, one day, many lasagnas later, I picked up some flowers for my little ginger. When the teacher asked me why, I told her, you were supposed to bring flowers to your girlfriend. When mom picked me up, the teacher told her she was concerned. No, not about the flowers. No, they were a hit with everyone, teachers and parents and students alike. No. The teacher was concerned something might be wrong at home because I was so quiet and shy. I didn't talk to the other kids. I barely spoke to the teachers. The only person I really took to was my little ginger. My mother assured the teacher everything was fine. Although, was it? Really? I clearly never had a chance. My age had been measured in months, not that many months ago, and I was already looking to settle down. Pump the brakes, kid. Get in the sandbox and mingle. Most people would agree the universe has a sense of humor. The universe has a flair for drama, too. It loves a plot twist, or a character you think will be inconsequential. It's storytelling on par with Shonda Rhimes and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Did you know Shonda Rhimes wrote Crossroads, the Britney Spears movie? Aaron told me that. 
He's still got his fingers cross-roaded. See what I did there? Cross-roaded for a sequel. It's unique to the universe that is not Crossroads in that it puts us on both sides of the screen. We're simultaneously audience and main character. That's why on days when I have to turn around and go home for my wallet or run back into the restaurant for my sunglasses all the time, or in a rare instance of spontaneity, take a different route to work, I wonder what kind of butterfly effect it'll have on my life in a few minutes or a few years or 15. Less than 96 hours into my college experience in September of 95, in one of those rare instances of spontaneity, I joined my roommate and a few other guys in skipping the convocation the final event of freshman orientation. (laughs) Sneaking into a bar, getting hammered, and buying weed from a dreadlocked local in a wool hat smelling of patchouli and driving a VW van like the one that chases Doc Brown and Marty in your favorite movie, at least it used to be, was not the plan. It's also not what happened. It would have made a better story, But the truth is, we didn't have a plan. We found a record store, but CDs were $18.99 each. Each! Back then, it was a $20 bet you might lose if you only knew the single. No one had that kind of cash to gamble with. There was a boutique next to that place that sold salt lamps and tapestries and a host of hemp products. It wasn't a stoner's van, but it did smell like patchouli. Yeah. There wasn't much going on. We didn't know what we were looking for. We got back to campus and, in an effort to avoid the crowd, cut through the communications building. We would have been in and out had it not been for the bush. Everything zen by the band Bush, was blasting out from behind the propped open door to the dimly lit studio of the college radio station. It was on a corner, across the hall from a combination workspace, lounge, that was quite possibly the coolest room I'd ever seen. Anything that wasn't window, furniture, or ceiling was papered over with posters and album artwork, some of it signed. Every other surface in the room, the drawers and the doors and the black metal utility cabinets where they kept the CDs, were all stuck with stickers for bumpers and bands and stations students had worked at. There was a couch, too. I think it was green. Next to an old-school phone that... I'd soon find out was for taking and making music calls to and from the labels. And there were actual gold records hanging up. The desk was cluttered, but it was a cool kind of clutter. Messy stacks of CD singles and a cascading pile of trade magazines like Billboard and Radio and Records and clipboards with program logs and highlighted music charts with 
Names like Space Hog, Belly and Letters to Cleo, Blur and Tracy Bonham, Rusted Root and Mazzy Star. And amongst it all sat a 90s-era tower-style computer with multiple disk drives, compact car-sized display, and attached daisy-wheel printer. The kind where you had to pull off the pin feed and separate each page. It was loud, too. The guy behind the keyboard spun around when he heard us come in. He had shoulder-length dark hair and a goatee and was wearing a Pearl Jam t-shirt. You guys need something? Oh, freshman? Jesus, were we that obvious? Hold on, my song is ending. He sprinted across the hall, the studio door slammed, and from the tuner and two speakers on the windowsill, I heard him speak. He did a back sell. That's where you tell the listener the last few songs they just heard. Then he gave some concert info and started the next song under him, finishing up with the station call letters just before the vocal, the actual singing, kicked in. That's called hitting the post. And there's not a radio geek on the planet that doesn't get a tingle when they nail a post. The guy came back in the room like it was nothing. He was so casual about it all. Sorry about that. We talked a bit about bands and the local scene. The meteoric rise of Alanis Morissette, too. I was also daydreaming about Mariah Carey's new album, but I kept that to myself. It was my private fantasy. He told us we should come to the first radio staff meeting and sign up for an audition. It was like I'd met two different people. The kid at the computer unassuming and soft-spoken, a music nerd like me, and this other guy, the guy on the radio, still a music nerd, but he sounded so sure of himself, like there was some kind of magical confidence he got when no one was looking, after the door closed and the on-air light came on. Radio was always on. It woke me up first thing, it was on in the minivan with my family or with my friends. It was a companion in the background, always right behind me. I'd never known the world without it. It was like my mom or microwaves or Oprah. Do you believe her show has been gone over 10 years now? And like Oprah, radio occasionally gave you prizes, sometimes cars, and it let you know what was cool. Now we curate for ourselves and tell each other what we like. But back then, radio did the curating for us. We were okay being told what to like. We all listened to the same thing, the same handful of radio stations. It was your connection not just to music, but to movies and TV and pop culture. You could find that on MTV too, but they were like the VIP room. Radio was like your connection to the VIP room, your person on the inside. You couldn't just check the supercomputer in your pocket for concert ticket details or album information or celebrity news or even news news. If something happened, you might not find a TV, but there was always a radio somewhere. Again, like Oprah, it was everywhere. There's a scene in Jerry Maguire, my favorite movie, at least it used to be, when 
After losing all his clients but one, when he's just at his wit's end, he gets a win and he signs Cushman, Jerry O'Connell. He gets in his car, grinning like, well, like Tom Cruise, and realizing he'll live to fight another day, he searches the static, frustrated, for a song to match his mood, until he lands on Free Fallen by Tom Petty. And he sings along the same way we all do in the car in those moments, elated and off-key at the top of our lungs. Now, Jerry could just ask the supercomputer in his pocket to play his Crushed It with Cushman playlist, or just say, play Free Fallen by Tom Petty. But back then, you had to hope and wait. And just as you were about to give up and stop surfing, radio would come to the rescue, like it had a sixth sense with just the song you needed. When I was a kid, my mom listened to a local morning show, one of the adult contemporary stations. It was two guys, plus news and traffic, the usual. They had famous visitors who periodically stopped by their secret studio. (laughs) My seventh grade class, teacher included, cracked up when I did my Massachusetts governor Mike Dukakis impression. I was just doing an impression of what I heard on that radio show. Honestly, though, it killed. I kind of liked it. Small children, preteens, and middle-aged ladies, teachers mostly, and one bus driver, found me delightful. And there were times when, from center stage and as an audience member outside myself, I'd find I had a knack for being at least mildly entertaining. But I'd think it was a fluke, a stroke of good luck. I couldn't make it a career. Could I? It was the guy from the college station with the Pearl Jam t-shirt. The way he'd just gone on and become this other version of himself that changed my mind. He reminded me of myself. Minus the hair. I could never pull off shoulder length. Could I? My high school had a radio station, and I walked by it every day for four years without a second thought. And if not for that rare moment of spontaneity when I took that shortcut, I might have walked past that one too. I might never have stumbled into that bush. It was that same feeling you get when the car's GPS is taking you through neighborhoods you've never seen and onto streets you've never heard of, and you're thinking, where the F is this thing taking me? And just then you see a familiar storefront, or that restaurant you went to that time, and you're like, oh, wait, I know where I am. Then you shut it off, because you've got it from here. I was exactly where I was supposed to be. I just knew it. And that was Aerosmith with Janie's Got a Gun from their Pump CD. Uh, Coming up, we've got some Zeppelin and some Black Crows for you. But right now, from the Angus soundtrack, it's Green Day with J-A-R. Oh my God, I was awful. But I loved it. And I was determined to get better. It wasn't a choice. When I was home on break, I recorded just the air personalities from the big Boston radio stations and studied them. No music, just them. 
They were all so good. I used to listen and wonder how many years I'd have to work before I'd be good enough to be on the air in a major media market like Boston. The closest I could get for the time being was an internship at the big top 40 station there. I went in for my interview, and of course, I was way too early. I was okay waiting on the overstuffed jade green leather couch in the lobby. The carpets were green too, I think. Dark green. A lot of green back then. And purple walls. Most of the walls were purple. There was an old-school coin-op crank candy dispenser on a pedestal next to the front door. It didn't match the decor, but it added a sense of quirk to what was now the coolest room I'd ever seen. The gold records and autographs here were from pop music royalty, like Whitney Houston and Cher and Bon Jovi. And on one of those purple walls, the one facing the door, were the framed black and white headshots. They were pretty big too, like 24 by 18, if I had to guess, of all the air personalities. The receptionist paged a few people, names I recognized, and I perked up, hoping to catch a glimpse. Everyone looked like a rock star. You could feel showbiz in the air. And you could hear it. The station was on everywhere in the building. Every so often, I'd hear the music get substantially louder towards the back of the building as it blasted from what I guessed was the air studio. I wanted to run toward it. Oh, and there was a full bar in the conference room. I just knew it. This was where I was supposed to be. Not because of the bar, but it was certainly a bonus. The following two summers, three days a week, I got up at 3.45 a.m. to get buzzed into that lobby as a morning show intern. Morning drive is typically the time slot most coveted. It was the highest profile. It had the most prestige. And I was going to be a part of it. Since you're the only male here right now, could you grab a mop out of the janitor's closet? The toilet in the men's room overflowed. That was my first day in major market commercial radio. And I was completely okay with it. The morning host there was, and still is, a legend. And I got to watch him make magic up close. All I had to do was pull commercials and CDs and fetch some coffee. And also, in this case, mop. He was always my favorite. He's smart and insightful, impeccable comic timing. He knew how to tell a great story. He knew his audience. Phenomenal interviewer, too. He interviewed Oprah. She was everywhere. Not gimmicky, but even if he had to do something gimmicky, it came with a wink. More Letterman than Leno. And he wasn't one for smacking the post on a song or back-selling one, unless he had to. No, he was a humorist, a social commentator, who just happened to be on a Top 40 radio station. I knew even then that so much of what he did couldn't be taught. You just had it or you didn't. I was in awe of him. I wanted to be him. 
could I? After two summers interning for him, and just a month after graduating college, I put a Hershey's Symphony Bar in a box and mailed it to the station. I covered over the H-O-N in symphony with a similarly fonted A-T-H. The note said something like, I'm sure you get a lot of demos to listen to, and you have my sympathy. A week later, they hired me. I was going to work there. It wasn't Free Fallen. Actually, I don't know what song it was, but I was singing elated and off-key at the top of my lungs. I couldn't believe it. I just took a chance with some chocolate. This was where I was supposed to be. It felt right. Really, really terrifying, but right. And this was something I just had to get through. The studio monitors, the speakers in there, were huge. Hanging from the ceiling, they were each the size of a kitchen dishwasher. The floor shook, and so did I. Once I turned the mic on, the speakers went mute. I couldn't feel the bass in the floor anymore. I couldn't feel the music around me. I only heard it in my headphones. I glanced over at CD number one, 30 seconds left. Once it ended, it was all me. Jesus, it was just me. I shouldn't let it fade too much. Keep the forward momentum. Let your energy match the song's energy, but don't start talking until the next song establishes itself. Try to hit the post, but don't try too hard. Mention the song title and artist. The display was flashing the last 10 seconds. And I did it. Madonna has a new one. Here's Beautiful Stranger. Or something like that. By the fall of 1999, my black and white headshot was up on that purple wall in the lobby. These people I'd grown up listening to, I was now on a first-name basis with. They, like, knew who I was. We swore comfortably in front of each other. Sure, they certainly had a higher degree of celebrity and had nicer houses and nicer cars. But damn, they were my co-workers. I was proud just to be a small part of it. I pinched myself every day. I remember always thinking, who gets this lucky? I played music for, at times, close to a million and introduced bands in front of thousands and opened countless mattress stores. It wasn't all glamour. I got to meet Madonna at a party and Jason Alexander, George Costanza from Seinfeld. I met him in that same lobby with the purple walls. A magazine named me one of Boston's most eligible gay bachelors. I even had a scarcely seen TV show. I'd say at the peak of my career, the zenith, right around the time you and I met in 05, I was at best a C-level local celebrity. I knew where I stacked up, but for a formerly shy preschooler, I felt pretty good. I felt significantly cooler. I had never imagined any of it. 
just like you never imagined living in Los Angeles. Being on stage was in your blood. Broadway was your first love, but a soundstage would do for the time being. You worked for that kid's show at first. It took place in space, and you'd sing the theme song just to get it stuck in my head. And I'm hearing it. Then you went from there, a show that took place amongst the stars, to one that took place under the stars. That summer, before the wedding, in 05, you'd call me while on one of your many errands to pick up this or that for the show, for the property master. The week before we met, you were on the hunt for a knockoff Birkin bag to be used as a stand-in for the real Birkin bag being used in an upcoming episode. I remember because you called me from the parking lot of an El Pollo Loco, and I told you I loved the crazy chicken. I still do. There's a song lyric by Frank Turner I adore. Love is about all the changes you make, and not just three small words. If we were going to work, going forward, one of us had changes to make. Less than a week after I got back to Boston, I got another package from you. As I cut through the cardboard, I was hoping for more Kulakus. But when I opened the box, I saw a bag the size of a small carry-on. And what was inside left me speechless. It was that knockoff Birkin you'd been sent to find. On top was the tattered cover page to a TV script from the show you worked on, titled Something Having to Do with Magic. In the blank space beneath, you wrote, The weekend was magic and we have more to make. I can't wait to get there and give you a thousand sweet kisses. Then, quoting that song, the one that became ours, you wrote, I'll cover you. Until then, these will have to do. Inside the bag were 1,000 Hershey's kisses you'd counted out by hand. before I could even consider giving up my dream job. Even though you despised the cold, you made the decision for me, for us. Love really is about the changes you make. In less than a month, you found a place to live, you found a job, and then you found me, waiting for you at baggage claim two. You moved to Boston the same month the movie adaptation of Rent opened. I took you as my date to the opening. Sometimes the universe winks at you like that. I had everything I'd ever wanted. The job, the guy, my family just a quick ride away. I was exactly where I was supposed to be. I felt like something was about to start. 
It was mid-May of 06, and a greasy-looking guy in an ill-fitting gray suit had come in from out of town to hold a grim staff meeting in an even grimmer hotel ballroom about some upcoming changes at the station. Now, we thought automation and outsourcing talent cheapened the product. We did handcrafted, high-quality radio. It's what made us legendary. So, for a while, we got away with a bigger budget. But by the mid-2000s, no stations were safe. I told you that night, when you came home, that I was pretty sure I wasn't going to have a job for much longer. When I said it, though, it was just gallows humor. Like, if I say it's going to happen, it won't happen. But that didn't happen. By June, my desk was cleared out. Less than a year after you gave up your career and moved across the country, all so I could keep doing this job that I loved, I'd lost it. I stood staring at the front door to a funeral home. There was a funeral home across the street from my apartment, remember? No one tells you that when you get let go, it's like going to your own funeral. Occupationally speaking, that is. You get to hear all the nice things people never said to you when you were alive. Again, occupationally speaking. After the calling hours ended, I started to spin. I felt lost. This wasn't where I was supposed to be in my movie. Looking in from the outside, you might have thought the magic was gone. Just a second. You know, even after we moved out of the city to the suburbs and the distance became too much for my little ginger friend and I, you know, she still came to my birthday party that year. She, her mom, drove the 45 minutes south just to see me. Yes. I had a boy-girl party at five. I'd made an impression that lasted. Flowers when you least expect them are the ones you never forget. I'll be right there. I don't know if you knew it in preschool. Clearly, I was emotionally advanced. But you picked it up somewhere. And you knew it too. Not six hours after I called and told you about losing my job. There, in the same doorway, I found your long-distance kisses. I found a dozen orange roses. And a card, of course. Congratulations on your run there. Now it's time for something better. Bigger and better. Be proud. And be excited for change. And then you wrote those three words. <laughs>